Welcome to the Faith Pampa Podcast, the podcast ministry of Faith Bible Church in Pampa, Texas. Each week, our pastors share a message from the scriptures to glorify God through the equipping, encouraging, and building up of the fellowship to grow in Christ and make disciples. This week, Pastor Dylan Hill will share a message from Joshua 2, 1 through 14, where we will see that the holy and faithful God we serve calls on his people to trust him in the face of opposition and receive those who accept him. Well, if you'd please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. And continue on in our study. Just by way of context, remember we are at the beginning of this book of Joshua. Last couple of weeks we've been looking at the commission of Joshua by the Lord to lead the people of Israel in the aftermath of Moses' death, preparing to enter into the land. And then last week we looked at this preparation that Joshua was calling upon the people and the leaders to make before they were to enter into the land. Now we're actually getting to some other things that Joshua was doing to help prepare the people to lead into the land, and that was to send spies into the land to get an idea of what lie before them in the land. So we pick up here in chapter 2. I do want to mention, you'll notice on your notes, we're going to get to a point where I don't have enough room on the notes to actually put the full text on there because we're getting into some longer narratives here. So if you'd like to follow along on the screen or follow along in your um, Bibles, that is where we will be. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 1 through 14. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land and Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a woman, a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden it. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now, she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax having been arranged for her. And the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And we heard it, and our hearts melted, and there was no spirit, excuse me, and no spirit stood in any man before you, for Yahweh your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt loving kindness with you, you also will deal loving kindness with my father's house. And give me a faithful sign. And you will let my father and my mother and my brothers live, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this matter of ours, 
then when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal loving kindness and faithfulness with you. Let's pray and seek the Lord's guidance before we enter into a time of studying his word. Father, we give you thanks that you have faithfully delivered this word by the hand of your prophet and preserved it for us to this day, that we might study the word of our God and know the God of the word. And so we pray as we enter into this time of study that you deal bountifully with your slaves, that we may live and keep your word and open our eyes to see wonderful things from your instruction. Guide us into the truth. Your word is truth. So that we might respond in faithful obedience, being conformed to the image of God in Christ to make your glory and salvation known to the lost and dying. We pray that your people would be equipped, encouraged, and built up in this time. That I would not speak from the empty arrogance of knowledge, but that you would speak to your people by your word and by your spirit. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that your name would be honored and glorified and exalted above all others in this time. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus the Christ, our King. Amen. So you're probably familiar with the idea of the path of least resistance, and this is kind of the life of water. Water tries to find the path of least resistance, and that's the way it goes. It wants to move. It's going to find the easiest way to get where it's going. And when it encounters opposition... It goes away from the opposition and immediately moves to whatever is the easiest path for it. It is a thing of the path of least resistance. The problem is that we have a tendency to be people of the path of least resistance. And when we encounter opposition, our natural reaction is to get away from the opposition and find the easiest way around it. Rather than to face the opposition, deal with it head on and address it the way it needs to be addressed. And then even sometimes when we find the easiest way, we just take it for granted and just go on and forget about it. Well, the reality is that when it comes to our engagement with the work of the kingdom, we're going to face opposition. And instead of trying to find the path of least resistance around that opposition, we need to face it head on, trusting in the Lord that he will work in those circumstances in his sovereign providence. And sometimes... As we do the work, we're not going to see opposition. We're actually going to see acceptance of the Lord. And we can't just overlook the wonder of that acceptance of what the Lord has done in those circumstances, nor our responsibility when we do see it. And so we need to see that as we do the work of sharing the hope of Christ, we will be opposed by many, but acceptance will come from the strangest and most unexpected places. And then there's responsibilities for us in that. So today we're going to see how the holy and faithful God we serve calls on his people to trust in him in the face of opposition and receive those who accept him. We should rightly expect opposition in a world fallen to sin and rebellion against God, but we should also expect that the grace of the Lord is going to work in people's hearts to change them and move toward him. Now, the last couple of weeks, as I said, we're in this first sort of five chapters of Joshua, where Joshua is taking up this work of leading Israel. And last week, we were looking specifically at this commission, or last couple of weeks, we were looking at this commission of Joshua, and then Joshua calling on the leaders to prepare the nation to enter the land. Well, today we're in the next section over in chapter 2. We're actually going to be here for a couple of weeks in chapter 2. I figured you probably didn't want to try to cover 24 verses in one sitting, So we're actually going to cover the first half of the narrative. But this is the sending of the spies into the land. And they're going to see this remarkable thing happen there, that despite the fact that they encounter opposition, 
encounters someone who actually sees God for who he is and actually turns to him. And so the first thing we're going to look at today is what it looks like to trust in the Lord despite opposition. We're going to look at two different responses to the work of the kingdom and how we're to respond to them. So we pick up here in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, looking first of all at the opposition that did come. So Joshua takes these two spies in, in verse 1 at this location they have camped out at, at this place called Shittim, so on the east of the Jordan River. I'll show you in just a moment. Uh, and he prepares these two men to go into the land. I do find this very interesting. Um, Joshua seems to have learned a lesson from Moses' experience. You don't send 12 guys into the land. Just send two. Two's plenty. Um, he learned his lesson from this. Uh, he and Caleb did it well. So he sends two spies into the land as well. Um, to go secretly to spy out the land, to go and view the land. Now, this is sort of a figure of speech, summary way of saying, look, he's sending them into land to understand the situation that they're going to be facing. What are the people like? What's the territory like? What's the strategic information that they need before they go in to do this? To get all this information they can get to better facilitate their move into the land as they encounter this first city of Jericho. Now, what we're actually going to see later on in the narrative in a couple of weeks when we come back to this is they actually get some, some, a bit of information that's far more important than just strategic information. And we're going to see that that has to do with what the Lord is actually already doing in the land, preparing before them. Now, just to give you an idea of kind of the territory here, the red dot on the right here, this is where they're camped out on the east side of the Jordan River in this, this area called Shittim. Um, they're going to be crossing over the river again, sort of just north of the Dead Sea and going into Jericho here on the left. Now, just to give you a little idea of the kind of the landscape they're dealing with, they're over here uh, just east of the plains of Moab, and they're going to cross the river and go into Jericho. Now, to give you an idea of the distance here, um, this is about the distance for if you were heading out of Pampa, right at the edge of town, going to White Deer. That's about the distance. So this is how far, yeah, whichever, I'm sorry, I'm not oriented well here. Um, but yeah, as you're leaving Pampa from here to White Deer, that's the distance, okay? So it's not that far away. Remember, the whole nation of Israel fits in about the second, or about half of the Texas Panhandle. It's, it's a small territory. But that's how far they got to go. It's only about 11, 12 miles. And they're being asked to cross here, go over, and do this work. Now, the spies go over, and they actually end up finding lodging with this very unexpected person, this Rahab, this harlot who works there in Jericho, and they actually find lodging with her. Now, she may be operating some sort of inn. It's a little questionable during this time whether or not things that we would associate as inns actually existed or not, um, or what they looked like during this time. They may have, they may not have, but either way, she's working at this place, and the men have found this place after coming into Jericho and found this lodging place. But then we see that when we get to verse 2, these people go to the king of Jericho to report to him that this has been going on. But the question is, how do they even know? Well, what we're going to see in the narrative is ever since Israel left Egypt, the Lord parting the Red Sea, the Lord bringing Egypt low in his plagues and judgments on them, Israel coming into the wilderness, Israel coming further north, taking these kingdoms to the east into the Amorites of Sihon and Og and being successful in all these battles and moving closer and closer to Canaan, reports of all this have made its way into the land of Canaan. They're fully aware of what's going on with Israel and their movement toward them. So it's not unlikely that the king of Jericho, 
whose city is right on the edge of the river, right next door to where the, this you know, million-plus number of people are camped out that have been moving in this direction, has probably sent people out to keep an eye on them. It's not surprising. And so it's not unlikely that these men who have gone have either been watched as they came over the river and came into the city, or they were seen coming into the city, and it's pretty well known what they're up to. And so folks who have gotten wind of this go to the king and they tell him, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Again, to understand it, to get its, see its weaknesses, its strengths. And so they report this to the king. Well, the king's response is obvious, unfortunately. He doesn't like this. And so he sends messengers and probably strong men, soldiers, to go to Rahab's house to get these men. Now, they're not getting them there just to ask questions. It's very likely they're going to get these men, bring them to the king, and these men are probably going to be killed. That's the object. This is the opposition that the king is showing them. Now, why? He's a king. He's in power. He's probably wealthy. He's controlling these lands around Jericho. Remember, this, we're still in kind of a state of what we call city-state uh, ruling. The idea that you have the major city at the center of a, kind of a narrow territory, that's his little kingdom, his little fiefdom, if you will. And so... He doesn't want to lose all that. He's got position. He's got power. He's got wealth. He's got control. He doesn't want to lose that. And he refuses to believe, despite what he's seen, that he's going to actually let go of all that. And so he's doing what he can, what he can to put Israel at a disadvantage in order to keep his position. And so he sends these messengers to go to Rahab to figure out who are these guys, where are they, bring them out so that we can take care of them and ensure that they do not cause a problem for Jericho. But then she responds by saying, it's true, these guys came in. But she didn't know where they were from, so she's pleading her innocence. I didn't know where they were from. I didn't know that these men were from Israel. Now we're going to find out that she knew more than she was letting on, by all means. But then she suggests that before the gate was closed, now the gates would be closed at night for obvious reasons. That is a dangerous time when enemies can come in at night, so the gates get closed at night. And so she's claiming these men left before those gates were closed, and that she didn't know where they went, which direction they went out, which way they headed after they went out. But she tells these men who are pursuing them to go out after them because they'll overtake them because they haven't left that long ago. Now, as we'll see in the narrative, she lied. Okay? She's a pagan. Okay? We need to give her a little bit of credit here. She's trying to do her best in the situation that she's found because what we're going to see is she knows something. She gets something that the king of Jericho is not willing to accept. That these who are opposing the spies, those who are opposing Israel, aren't understanding, aren't accepting, and aren't willing to submit themselves under. But she is. So again, as we'll see later in the text, the peoples west of the Jordan and in Jericho, they saw what Yahweh was doing in Israel, how he was blessing them and helping them to succeed. And despite what they'd seen of them of the Lord laying low Egypt, crossing the Red Sea in this miraculous act, giving them success after success in battle to the east of their land. They refused to repent and turn to the God of Israel in faith. And from what we can see with Rahab, there's still time. The settlement has not begun. And they continued, despite that, to oppose what the Lord was doing in Israel. And ultimately, that is opposition to the Lord himself. So here's the thing. Just as those in Jericho refuse to turn, so many who see the works of Jesus through his people as well will refuse to turn to him. 
And so as we go out and face this opposition, we have to trust in the Lord nonetheless. We don't turn from the opposition. We don't take the easiest path. We trust that when we face that opposition, the Lord will work in those circumstances. If we're to look at John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, we get sort of this summary of sort of this idea from the apostle. The true light, which is Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They turned to him not because they did it in their own strength, but because the Lord worked in them to turn them to him. But we see that he still faced opposition from his own people, people who should have known better, people who had seen things. In fact, as we go to Matthew chapter 11, we see this really interesting interaction. John the Baptist is in prison, and he's having perhaps some doubts as to whether or not this Jesus is the actual Christ, the one they've been looking for. And so he sends people to Jesus to ask him this question. And so in chapter 11, verse 2, we read, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him. Now listen to this. Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is essentially telling John, do you not see what's going on? These things that are only of God. In fact, we go to the healing of the blind. This is something that only the Lord does. And the fact that Jesus is doing these things should indicate, yes, he is in fact the Christ but we see that people still cannot get their minds wrapped around this. In fact, to speak of a blind person, if you remember the narrative in John 9, the blind man who is healed by Jesus, who is called before the leadership because they just can't believe that Jesus, who healed this man on the Sabbath, mind you, this sinner in their estimation, had done something that only God could do. They'd seen all these wonders that Jesus had done and still could not by that Jesus was the Christ. They called this man in. And they asked him what he thinks. Is he the Christ? And the man says, look, I don't know if he's the Christ or not, but all I know is I was blind and now I see. Something that only God does. And so they continue to question him. They call his parents in. Was this really your son? Is this re- was he really blind from birth? They're like, yes, he was blind from birth. This is our son, but he's a grown man. Ask him. What happened? And they asked him again. And he goes back to them and, and he continues to be dumbfounded by the fact that they are not understanding the things that they've seen should clearly indicate that Jesus is the Christ, yet they still oppose him despite what they see. So why the opposition? Well, generally speaking, there are four reasons. And for you alliterators, here you go. Power over themselves, over others, to have power and control over one's circumstances, to be a ruler. People don't want to lose that because it's security. It's the ability to control others, to lord over them. They don't want to give this up. 
position. They may not have power, but they may have a certain, af- a certain uh, influence upon those around them in their cultural setting, in their environment, amongst their friends and family. They have a certain position of prominence amongst their people. Yes, lots of alliteration. So it may not be that they're in some particular authority, but they have a cer- they're looked at with a certain deference. Possessions. We saw this with a rich young ruler. He was unwilling to let go of his possessions to follow after Jesus. They don't want to give up what they have because what they have gives them security. Gives them peace for some reason. Helps them feel secure. Pleasure. To have to give up the pleasures of life that help me ignore the pain that I'm suffering. The pleasures that help me to ignore all the troubles I have that are sinful, that I don't want to turn away from. And I'll add this fifth one in, and I know I'm kind of cheating here. The passionate rebellion. The desire to simply be the Lord of my life, the captain of my soul. To be in charge. All of these things will add up to opposition to the gospel. One of my... Um, favorite missionaries to talk about. Um, I actually got to write a, a biography paper on him in seminaries, a man by the name of Samuel Zwimmer, who's called the apostle to the Muslim world. He spent 40 years in the Muslim world ministering there and saw less than a dozen people come to Christ. He saw lots of opposition while he was there. People who did not want to give up what they had in their culture, in their religion, in their society. He saw a lot of opposition. But he continued to faithfully serve in those lands for 40 years. And what came of that was it laid the foundation for missions to the Middle Eastern world because of the work he did. And now thousands, hundreds of thousands of Muslims have turned to Christ Because this man continued in faithful obedience despite the opposition he faced. Facing it head on, staying there for so long. And the reality is that when we face the opposition, we have to continue in faithful obedience as well. You're going to encounter oppositions of all sorts. People who don't believe. People who have so many different criticisms of the faith. So many people who don't want to give up. Again, Power, position, possessions, pleasure, or their passionate rebellion. They don't want to give up these things. And so they're going to naturally rebel against the message we have for them in Christ. Because although Christ gives life and hope, He also calls on us to give up a lot that is of this world that we put our trust in. And so you're going to face this opposition And it could be as extreme as violence. It could be as extreme as verbal accosting of you. Questions that you have no answer to. Questions that are just avoiding the reality of things. Criticisms. Hurts. Or one of the hardest ones, apathy. Just I don't care. You're going to face a lot of opposition as you go out. But there are three things we need to do as we do. Entrust ourselves to the Lord 
in the midst of that opposition. Trust that he's going to work into those situations. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago with the opposition that Joshua said, no, the Lord told Joshua, none will be able to oppose you. And that is the case in Christ as well. Ultimately, none will oppose Christ. One of two things will happen, as I mentioned. Either his grace will change their hearts. They will not resist his work of grace in their hearts to turn to him in repentance and faith. Or they will one day stand in judgment before him. Either way, no opposition will stand before the Lord. And so as we face that opposition, the best thing we can do is trust the Lord to work in that situation. As we go through that difficulty too, it helps to lean on his people, to go back to our people and say, I'm trying, what can I do? Or can you pray for me as I engage with this person? Would you pray for them that the Lord would break their hearts for the Lord? Would you pray that I would continue to trust the Lord despite the opposition I'm facing? Leaning on our people is so important. And that's why it's so important to spend time with one another. Not just during this time, but out in the week, having meals together, coffee together, and conversation together, prayer with one another. It's vital that we do this because we're going to face this hardship. And then in the midst of all that, to continue in faithful obedience to continue to go despite the opposition, to continue to sacrificially serve others in loving kindness, to continue to be present for those we are trying to reach, to continue to be with them, to continue to ask them questions, to continue to answer their questions, to continue to talk, to help them know that despite their objections, despite their opposition to us, we still love them, we still care about them, and we still want to engage with them, and to not give up on them. And so we continue in faithful obedience as well. So again, as we face opposition, we have to trust that the Lord will work in those circumstances regardless of the opposition and resistance that we see. All right, any questions or comments at this point? All right. So again, we need to trust in the Lord in the face of opposition, but we also need to receive those who do accept him. As we get into verse 6 here, we see Rahab go up on the roof. The pursuers have left, the men who are going after the spies, resisting them, opposing them, to take them before the king, likely have them executed to try to stop this thing from happening so that Israel doesn't get the intelligence information that they need in order to go into the land that the king of Jericho perceives that they need in order to be successful. Once all these men have left, Rahab goes up to the roof. She's already hidden them. So this is sort of a reflection on that. Now they've left, she's going up to the roof. And so she had hid them in these stalks of flax. Uh, for those of you who aren't farmers, that would be me. Um, flax is this wonderful crop that we use to produce linen. also produces uh, different food products that can be used. It's a valuable commodity. And in this culture, it's possible that this was also kind of a side business for Rahab as well. As another way for her to make money was for this flax to be laid out on a roof to dry, to sell, to make money for her. But it had been arranged out on the roof probably to dry. And she'd hidden these men under this flax so they wouldn't be found. And the men that pursued her pursued all the way to the Jordan River, left Jericho, probably about you know, five miles away from Jericho. They're going down to the river. If you're not familiar with the word ford, uh, in this case, a ford is where the, the river actually gets pretty shallow, where it's easier to cross. Um, so they go all the way down to the fords where this is the case. 
The obvious reason being, if that's where those men came across, that's where you're going to catch them, because that's the easiest place to cross. And so they're going to try to cut them off at the fords to keep them from crossing back over the river. Um, and the gate was shut as soon as they had gone out. So it is now nighttime. So in verse 8, she goes up before these men are actually going to sleep, after they've probably un, you know, gotten out from under the flax and, and you know, been able to ra- relax since the pursuers are gone. And before they actually have a chance to lay down and go to sleep for the night, she comes up to the roof and she says to them, now listen to this, this is so vital. I know that Yahweh has given you the land. To go a step further, she says, I know that the fear of you has fallen upon us. The entire community of Jericho, the people there in their region, the fear of Israel has fallen upon them because of what the Lord is doing through them. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Because of what the Lord has done, the people are terrified at what's about to happen. And again, if you looked across the river, you'd see this camp of over a million people, in their view, about to invade the land and overwhelm them and take from them. And they are terrified. And notice she concludes herself in that. But here's the reason why, verse 10. She heard, along with all those people, how Yahweh dried up the waters of the Red Sea. Now bear in mind, this is 40 years prior. When they came out of Egypt, they heard about all that had happened there in Egypt. We actually see this back in Exodus and in Torah, where word had already reached Canaan very soon after the events that happened, that this had happened to Egypt and they'd crossed the Red Sea. That they had gone up just to the east of the Jordan and defeated these Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. These are not small-time guys. These are big-time kings in that area. And they defeated them and devoted them to destruction. We've seen this before, this word of, of being devoted to destruction. They'd been judged. As, as Israel had been used as an instrument of justice upon them. And so she has said that she knows that the Lord is giving the land to Israel. She knew the debilitating fear that was on the people. And she knew that Yahweh was the God of the heaven and earth. And that's where she goes in verse 11. She heard it and her hearts melt away. And no spirit stood in any man. Their, their spirit just left them in complete despair. And the reason why, for Yahweh your God, He is God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Remember in this time period... If my nation beats your nation, the reason why is because my God is stronger than your God. Because in their estimation, gods are regional. They only rule over regions. But for her to say that God is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath, that means he controls everything. That is a dramatic statement for someone out of a pagan culture in this time. Because that is not the way they see the world. And she's acknowledging that all these kingdoms, if, if Yahweh, the God of Israel, struck down the gods of Egypt in the plagues, if he struck down these kings east of the Jordan, this is not a God to be trifled with. He is clearly the God of all heavens and the God of all the earth. And therefore, there's no reason to think that he's not going to be able to help Israel come into the land and take it over. So she is acknowledging this. She's acknowledging that he is God. Now, this is not the sort of uh, Christological confession that we would expect in our times. 
But in their time, this is tantamount to repentance and faith in the God of Israel. And she goes on and says this, because she has seen this, she begs an act of mercy. In verses 12 through 14 here, in 12 and 13 we get this request. That, if you, that because she had done this act of loving kindness toward them, she asked that they would do a loving kindness toward her and her father's house. Mother, brothers, all those who served them, who belonged to them, that they would ultimately deliver them their lives from death whenever Israel invaded the land. Now remember, the settlement has not begun yet. There is still time for the people in Canaan to repent. And Rahab takes that opportunity. But once they come into the land, it begins. The act of justice on behalf of God with Israel as, its instrument, as his instrument begins. And so she's asking for mercy on her house. Now, I love the word loving kindness here in Hebrew. Uh, we're familiar with the word agape in Greek. Hebrew, it's chesed. It's fun to say because you get to do the guttural ch thing and try not to spit on your neighbor. Um, but the word chesed has this idea. I do for you and care for you without any expectation of reciprocation. That's the idea. But then you look at this and you say, wait a minute, she is asking for something in return. But if it is actually a chesed act, this is a begging for mercy. It's not an expectation, it's a begging for mercy. I don't know that I can get it. But I'm begging you for it. And so she is asking for mercy because of this faith that she has that God is the God of all heaven and earth. And look at the response of the men. They didn't just reject her outright. No, 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 you're a Canaanite. You're a harlot. You're awful. You lied. Why would we take care of you? Why would we do this? But that's not their response. What's their response? Their response was to receive her nonetheless. They said, our life for yours, even to death. That's how much they invested themselves in receiving her and her household. If, they, if she didn't tell this matter of ours, and bear in mind they've got a little bit of, I get it, she lied to her pursuers to you know, possibly save herself. They don't know this woman real well. But if she sticks to this and demonstrates, no, this is for real, that she keeps this to herself, and does not tell this matter and get these men caught and rebel against Israel, that when Yahweh gives them the land, they would deal not only chesed with her, but faithfulness. That they would be faithful to fulfill the promise to preserve them to life in the face of death. Now, we're going to get into more of the details of this as we get into the second half of the narrative in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. But this is the initial comment. They see this thing that God has done in this unexpected person, that he has worked faith in her, and she has trusted in the Lord, that he is the God of heaven and earth. And so they are now receiving her in loving kindness and faithfulness. By the grace of the Lord, this unexpected individual turned in faith to the Lord. Now they were able, now they were to be received. And so these men received them. And so too for us. As we see those who are unexpected turn to the Lord, we have a responsibility to receive them. Just as Rahab responded by accepting the Lord, 
so many will respond by accepting Christ as we go out. Yes, we're going to face opposition, but we're also going to see people who actually do accept the Lord because of His grace working in them. At the end of the narrative of the blind man who's healed in John 9, the blind man who's healed comes out and Jesus encounters him again. And he asks him if he knows who the Son of Man is. And the blind man responds by saying, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Because if he's the one who healed me, I want to believe in this guy. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man responded, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And then Jesus said this, and this is, this is sort of his summary statement on this whole matter. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this, heard these things, and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. They claimed to see, and yet what they saw didn't convince them that Jesus was in fact the Christ. Despite all the evidence, they refused to believe. And therefore, they were themselves blind. But this blind man who'd experienced this thing, who had seen what Jesus is all about, believed and worshipped him. Now what's extraordinary about this is this is a blind beggar sitting in the street day after day. This is a nobody. In fact, when this whole narrative begins, the disciples see him and say, who sinned, him or his parents? Now what that was reflective of during this time was if you were suffering from blindness, leprosy, some other ailment, it was because you sinned. Where are they getting this from? Well, this is now the individual extrapolation of the covenant blessings, right? You sin and disobey God, you get cursed. Well, that's not the way the covenant blessings worked. It was a broad scope thing where if the nation as a whole disobeyed, they would be cursed and cast out of the land. What Jesus says is this man is blind not because he was a sinner, but so that the glory of God would be revealed through him by this healing. And so this remarkable instance happens with this man who is a nobody. He's not a religious leader. He's not a philosopher. He's not a guy in power. He's not someone you would expect to take charge and lead the way for Jesus. He's a nobody sitting in the street begging and blind. It came from an unexpected place that the Lord intervened in a life and changed him and turned him to the Lord. And we're going to see that over and over again. But there's something we have to understand about when it happens. When we do see this happen, we have to go back again to the reality about what's going on in that person's heart. You don't have time to read through the whole thing, but if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, what Paul makes clear in this letter is that the only way anyone turns to Christ in faith and repentance is His grace working in their hearts to change them such that they have faith in Him. He says salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We often say salvation is by faith alone, but we forget the step that in order for us to have faith, the Lord has to work His grace 
transformation in our hearts in order to even have faith in the first place. It is His work in us first. But then, Paul makes this remarkable statement at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Now bear in mind the context is a little different, but the principle is still the same. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26-31, through 31, Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers, in other words, whenever you came to Christ, when you were called out to come follow Christ. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. In other words, those who thought they were smart. Those who thought they had all things together. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Those who thought they were strong, they could care for themselves, they could do whatever, that they were powerful enough to control their destiny. No. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, no one could say, I'm great, when it came to being before the Lord. And he concludes by saying this, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let no one who boasts, excuse me, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boasting shouldn't come from our strengths, from our position, our power. None of that. It should come from the Lord himself. And so the Lord chooses the unexpected. He chooses the ones you wouldn't think. The ones that aren't the most seemly individuals, the ones who aren't the most reputable people, the people who aren't the smartest, the people who aren't the strongest. He chooses the weak so that the Lord is the one who will be boasted in. We have lots of ways in our culture to show achievements. Trophies, plaques, certificates, diplomas, some different types of clothing, badges. We have all sorts of things that we use to show off achievements, right? But here's the thing. Our tendency is, especially in our achievement culture that we live in, is when we see people changed by the Lord, when we engage with them, we have this strange tendency to try to take credit for that. And then they just become another example of, see what the work I've done. See what I've accomplished by actually engaging with this person, sharing the gospel with them. See how they trust in Christ. It's yet another tally mark to put on my, I shared the gospel and someone got saved. Rather than acknowledging what the Lord has done in them, the remarkable thing that He's worked in their hearts, we have this tendency to self-praise and then on top of that, we have this tendency toward ignoring that individual afterwards instead of taking responsibility for them. And so as we go out and actually engage people with the gospel and we see these remarkable instances of people coming to Christ, Him using the weak, the broken down, the destitute, the pained, those who are weak, have no power or position, when He changes them, we celebrate and rejoice. It is a wondrous thing, and we point toward the Lord and what He has done in them. But then we have a responsibility, and that is to receive them, 
Just as the spies received Rahab when the Lord worked in her heart and changed her, so we have a responsibility to receive them. We receive them with open arms. We take responsibility for them. Now, I know there are going to be the sometimes cold turkey evangelisms on the plane. No pressure, those of you who are are traveling in the next couple of weeks. There is the cold turkey evangelism, right? I'm never going to see you again in my life, but I'm going to have a conversation with you about Jesus. There's only so much you can do in those circumstances. But the reality is you live in a small community with people you see all the time, with relationships that can be ongoing, with people that you can spend time with for lengths of periods, to be able to have good conversations, to serve them well, and to share the hope of Christ. And so when you do... And they do accept Christ because of what He has done in their hearts. It's time to take responsibility for them. To receive them, to care for them in their faith as they're initially growing in it. It means caring for them as they're struggling to follow Christ. You know, I had someone tell me one time it was so much easier when I just came to church and sat down in the pew and just listened to the message and sang some songs and went home. But when I finally trusted in Christ and came and sat, life got hard. Why? Because now we're not playing games. Now we're actually following Christ, and now you're facing the opposition of the enemy, the opposition of the world, suffering. All these things start, come, or start crumbling down upon you. And so they need to be cared for in that process as well. And they need to be discipled. They need to be taught. You'll notice in the Great Commission, the Lord tells them not just to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but He tells them to teach them to keep all that he commanded them. Why? So that they would represent him well. Because the idea is to teach the next generation of people, whether they be older than you in life or not, to disciple them so that they represent Christ well. So that they can do what you did with them, which was to share the hope of Christ with others. And to be an instrument of God's grace in someone else's life. And so again, when we see these remarkable things that the Lord does in the lives of others, His grace changing these unexpected people. And I should say, He's going to change people of high position and power as well. We see that in the Scriptures too. And even then, that's a remarkable thing that He's changed them despite all they have to lose. But either way, we have a responsibility to receive them, care for them, and disciple them. So again, we're going to face opposition. And we need to trust in the Lord in the midst of that opposition and continue to be obedient nonetheless. And when we do see the remarkable work of God in the hearts of people who turn to Him, we have a responsibility to receive those who accept Him. All right, any questions or comments at this point? All right, so again, our main idea today was this. That the holy and faithful God we serve calls on his people to trust him in the face of opposition and to receive those who accept him. And so as we go to the table today, we need to spend some time in honest reflection and how when we faced opposition, we just turned from it. We tried to take the path of least resistance, not facing it, trusting in the Lord, trusting in him to work in those circumstances denying that he was capable of dealing with it in ways that we couldn't possibly imagine. And we need to spend some time in self-reflection on how we have failed to care for those whom he has changed. How we failed to care for them well, to shepherd them well, to receive them well, 
and continue to build them up so that they could go and do what the Lord has called them to do, to represent Him well and to make Him known and to see other lives transformed. And so as we go and confess that, repent of it, seek forgiveness, we need to pray for His grace to trust in Him in the face of opposition and to receive well those whom He has changed, who have accepted Him. And we need to give thanks to the Lord Jesus that He has even made it possible through His death, burial, and resurrection for His grace to change lives, to receive Him, to turn rebellious sinners bound up in their power, position, possessions, pleasure, and rebellion, that He's able to change those because of what He has done to follow Him and find life in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for what you've done through the Lord Jesus. That you have accomplished this wonder through his death, burial, and resurrection. To change the hearts of rebellious sinners to follow after you. And then in your grace, seen fit to make us part of making you known. To use us as instruments of your grace to proclaim the hope of Christ. That others might find life in you. So, Lord, we come before you this morning confessing the times when we have failed to trust you in the midst of opposition and we have failed to receive those whom you have changed, who have turned to you to find life. We ask your forgiveness. And we pray for your grace, Lord, that our faith in you will be ever increased when we face opposition. That in those times in particular, we would throw ourselves completely upon your strength and upon your works in their lives. And we pray for your grace that you would help us to not be neglectful in receiving those whom you have redeemed. Lord, we exalt and glorify you as God. And we praise you for the remarkable things you've done in our lives as sinful, rebellious people to turn us to you. And we thank you that you continue to work that in the lives of others. We pray all this in the blessed name of Jesus the Christ, our King, for whom this is possible. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Faith Tampa podcast. We hope that this message was an encouragement to you. For more information on Faith Bible Church, please visit www.faithpampa.org.